This is Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast about how the world was, is, and will be ordered. On this week's episode, we're excited to finally air a conversation we taped right before the coronavirus outbreak with John Borsler, the CEO of Combined Arms, a Houston-based organization that helps returning veterans transition back to civilian life. He's also an alumni of GMF's Marshall Memorial Fellowship, an experience which led him on an unlikely path to helping establish a Ministry of Veterans Affairs thousands of miles away in Ukraine, a first for the country. We talked with John about his work on veterans' issues and how he took a challenge that's usually thought of as more of local or national and ended up helping communities across the world. Here's the conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So before we really get into it, tell us a little bit about, first of all, your background, kind of how you landed where you are today with Combined Arms and how you got linked up with GMF and just all the above. Yeah, well, it's uh, hopefully not too long of a story, but essentially, you know, I joined the Marine Corps as a young person, uh, like many of us do, seeking adventure and uh, great vacation spots, although the great vacation spots didn't really turn out very well. After transitioning out of the Marine Corps, my first job was as a defense fellow uh, for a member of Congress. So that's really where I got to see all the gaps in the Defense Department and the Veterans Affairs Department and how they didn't integrate with local communities. And essentially, the, the idea and the problem statement for combined arms to be that community-based transition point for military service members and their families was born. So when in talking about combined arms and the military transition problem statement generally, the military and the Defense Department creates the largest number of displaced workers Every year, 250,000 young men and women get out of the military, and they, they don't stay in California or Maryland or Virginia. They go back to places like Texas or Missouri or Florida, and they're not necessarily tethered to that military apparatus anymore, and they need a lot of help when they reenter society after many years of service. So that's where we come in uh, to ensure that ultimately that it's our responsibility at the community level to ensure that these individuals and their families successfully transition and make a greater impact on the communities we return to. And uh, how we got involved in GMF, I was at the mayor's office in Houston building um, a similar program, the first iteration of Combined Arms, essentially, and the um, the 2010s, which is now, I guess we're in the 2020s, so this is kind of weird to say, and uh, got selected and went on my fellowship in 2011 when things were a lot different than they are today and a lot of fun. So I still keep up with a lot of my fellow fellows. So You alluded to this a little bit, and you have written in a report that the kind of veterans affairs community has made a lot of mistakes since the global war on terror started. It sounds like there's been some course correction, but what are the mistakes? I mean, I think a lot of people really care about veterans affairs and care about our men and women in uniform, but might not necessarily know a lot about what it's like when they get back. Yeah, I mean, I think I kind of look at my whole career as a portfolio of mistakes, and it's fantastic to be able to hopefully course correct from that. And I think we as a community, we as a system uh, supporting veterans and transitioning military are always pretty cognizant of how we can continue to drive towards systemic change. But really, like I said, that problem statement of these individuals are literally on active duty in California or Missouri or Virginia, and they're coming back to places like Texas, that creates that 
that displaced worker issue where they don't have a professional and personal network in the communities they return to. And so it takes them too long to get a good job or they get the wrong job. So they, instead of going to work at, um, you know, a, a big energy company or a healthcare company, they're getting a job at Best Buy. And there's nothing wrong with getting a job at Best Buy is that, but these young men and women are very highly qualified and technically skilled and have global experience. So we need to do a better job of, of making sure that they have, they have connectivity into the right employment opportunities, but also the other supportive elements that they need in their transition, like connecting with other veterans, like recreating that unit mentality, that camaraderie at the community level. That's the second most requested service in our system and having good access to mental health and, and VA healthcare that's specific to veterans and our needs, kind of bad knees, bad backs kind of thing, you know, and making sure that, that we're connecting on those issues as well. So there's a there's a lot of different things that were that were that we've tested and tried and failed and a lot and that has only helped us, I think, get to a point where we're now have this really op- significant opportunity to change that system, not only at the community level, but change defense department transition policy forever. And you kind of just led into my next question, which is about the interplay between the government, which is a massive bureaucracy from what I've heard, and these kind of the community level services. So how does that work in terms of the connections being made between you guys in Houston and then the guys sitting in the Pentagon and in the VA here in D.C.? I wish I could say it it does work, but it really doesn't. And that's what we have in front of us to fix. That is the significant challenge in front of us because the Defense Department, they're culturally and mission, I mean, their mission is to protect and defend the United States, not ensure that our soldiers are getting a job when they leave, right? So it's the only organization that helps you get a job after you leave your job, right? It's kind of a weird dynamic, but it's our responsibility as well. So we are getting better. We are making progress in showing that not only from a data and research perspective of the outcomes and the impact that we make at the community level and kind of the completions end of the military transition process, so to speak, it actually works. And if we were able to better connect in with enterprise DOD and enterprise VA and make sure that that soldier doesn't fall through the cracks. And at the same time, we hold everybody accountable in that process and that pipeline, so to speak, then, then we can atru- achieve true systemic change. And so I mean, you mentioned how big of a bureaucracy. I mean, DOD, the Defense Department, is the largest employer in the world. I mean, so it's it, just just the sheer scope of that is, uh, is is insane. Like we have like 10 carrier fleets or something like that. Like, you know what the next or next country over, how many carrier fleets they have? Less than 10. Zero. Yeah. Zero. Like, like it's crazy. So it's, it's amazing what the, the power we're able to project. But at the same time, we have to take care of that workforce because we won't be able to recruit for future generations of soldiers and sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen if we don't show that the community, that the return on investment and that these veterans are successful in their careers after the military service. Mm -hmm. And what is what is the current unemployment rate in the veteran community? The unemployment rate is actually quite low. We have made significant progress in the last 10 years to where it was over 20 percent for veterans under, you know, the age of uh, 23, I believe, uh, a couple, you know, about in 2009, 2010. And since that time, we have made dramatic um, progress in not only connecting them to the right jobs, but getting the employers more involved in that pipeline, more involved in that process and better educating them. 
So there are more issues surrounding getting the right job and underemployment. So a veteran is like 15% more likely to be underemployed than their civilian counterparts. That's just because of skills translation issues, the professional network, the lack of professional network, as I mentioned earlier, because we are displaced workers. But there are opportunities to fix that and, and prepare for that and prevent that by getting further upstream in that transition process and wrapping our arms around those individuals and making sure that they're transitioned successfully. Okay, so now we've kind of got the context down. I think personally your work is really interesting because not only have you guys consulted and advised other countries like Ukraine, which we'll get to in a bit, but you have also looked to other countries for lessons on how to apply here and make our system better in the U.S. So you did a research or case study in Denmark. Why Denmark? Yeah, that's How'd a great question. Yeah. So why Denmark? Um, we love Denmark, right? Uh, it's such an interesting, phenomenal little uh, little country. And is and it, the size of it mattered a lot. So the control group in, in the United States that I was the most familiar with is my own community in Houston, Texas, which happens to be one of the largest veteran populations in the United States and the third or fourth largest city in the United States, depending on what data you look at. That Houston, the Houston, greater Houston area is the same size population-wise as Denmark, the entire country. And we roughly have about the same number of veterans who have served in Afghanistan side by side. And so a lot of people don't realize that Denmark is actually one of the largest contributor of combat troops to the ISAF mission in Afghanistan. And they actually have a, a much higher casualty rate than their other counterparts because they only contribute combat troops and not support troops. So in that instance, and in, we're thinking about that data point, what is Denmark doing or you know, what, were, you know, what are they doing to ensure these soldiers transition successfully when they return home from combat? And how can we learn from, from those, those lessons and best practices? So what we found when we went there, apart from the, the lovely people and weird, you know, very cold and wet weather, um, is that they have built these community-based veteran centers that involve multiple stakeholders, including the Ministry of Defense on down to local NGOs delivering mental health services, and created this single point of entry system so that you, when you return home to, you know, Jutland, uh, for example, instead of just like a big city like Copenhagen, you're going down to Jutland and your, your, your little town has connectivity into that system and that you are, you are cared for. And I think that that kind of microcosm of, uh, of, of an example set, we took those lessons learned and applied them to the combined arms model in Houston, and we've seen significant results. And since then, by the way, we've had a phenomenal relationship with the Danes. Like literally the, their, their foreign minister has been in our space like speaking before in Houston. We have the consul general coming through all the time, you know, several ambassadors. The princess was in, uh, in Houston last year and, um, so it's 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 been a pretty interesting relationship uh, because of the shared commerce and the shared military cultural isms between the two countries. So I think when people think about countries like Denmark and Scandinavian countries, you know, there's obviously we have a lot of comparisons to Norway and Finland and how great life is in those countries. But those countries are a lot smaller than the U.S. and they have a much different population. Social and they welfare have state. Yes, they have <laughs> social welfare state. They have nationalized health care. So do you think, in your experience, you obviously were just applying it to one city. Do you think that this model is scalable and, you know, in terms of 
the broader U.S., just given the differences between the structures of the governments? Absolutely. It's in it. We're, you know, and the return on investment is significant if we can figure out how to connect the dots between the Defense Department and the many 250 installations that soldiers transition from in the U.S. and abroad and then return to the communities. It works very well in other markets, uh, for example, the United Kingdom and France and Israel, all of which are very small in comparison to the United States. But when you look at the the level of complexity that they have in, as well in their military transition systems, they're much more successful in that the Ministry of Defense in each country is much more involved and tied, tethered, so to speak, to the community so that that veteran doesn't fall through the cracks in transition from base A to community Z. So I, I think it's it's our responsibility. We owe it to the, the clients, to the veterans and their families themselves to figure this out. Um, but like you said, it, Denmark and, and even Houston are like demographically inverse in terms of like a, like it's a Denmark's a very homogenous population. Houston's the most diverse city in the United States, right? So ninety different languages are spoken there, and pretty much just Danish and English is spoken in Denmark, right? <laughs> um, and in different economic classes, and all. yeah, and there, this, the the expansive social welfare state that exists in in Denmark, as opposed to like a place like Texas where. There is significant lack of social welfare uh, and social services in general um, provided by government agencies, both local and state, is a, is just dynamically different and disparate. But there are similarities that we can learn from and pull the the the, good, the golden nuggets out and apply them to our model. So, are you guys in touch with other cities in terms of? kind of creating the or scaling the combined arms yes. model and elsewhere absolutely. in the country? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Our friends here in D.C. want it um, here in D.C. and New York and Los Angeles and other markets throughout the state of Texas that we're currently scaling to in Colorado, Florida. There's a lot of conversations going on um, to collaborate at a much higher level and apply the mistakes and the lessons learned that we've kind of packaged in a combined arms in a box and and take it to other highly fragmented veteran communities. Okay, so moving on, I want to get to Ukraine. First of all, how did you get from Denmark to Ukraine? There were a few years in between. What was going on there? So we did a couple other projects with other countries, as I mentioned, with UK and France and Israel. And I am also the city coordinator for the Marshall Memorial Fellowship Program. So any inbound or in Houston, rather. So any inbound Marshall Fellows coming from Europe, uh, if they're, if Houston is one of their destination cities in the fall, then they get to meet me and all my Houston uh, MMF friends. So that has been a, a pleasure to, to, to do professionally and personally and stay connected. And one of my, actually my very first um, class of fellows, my first cohort that came in 2016, Igor Goncharenko was one of those fellows. And he is uh, from Ukraine. He worked at that point in time, he worked for the presidential administration in the in the anti-corruption, the Re- reforms office, which is critically important to the future of Ukraine, of course. Yes. And this and, is under Poroshenko. Yes. Yes, exactly. In 2016. So uh, Igor, for his per- personal appointment, as you may or may not know, uh, um, or those listening may or may not know, when, in, when each city you go to, you have about a four hour block on one day dedicated to a personal or professional appointment that is in your interest or your 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 profession or your professional vertical so to speak and he wanted to meet with me and I was like well why Igor like you know I can set you up with anyone here you know we've got corruption too let's talk about it but he's like well we have a problem in Ukraine we have about 300,000 
soldiers who have fought in the east in Donbass and now return to the communities and there's no infrastructure for successful transition. And we would like to know what that looks like. And I'm like, wow, that is uh, a problem statement to be presented to anyone and be and, and immediately grab your, your interest. Yeah. And so as our discussion continued, not only that week, but in the months following, we applied for an alumni grant, got it. And then we were asked to present our project to at the at the first triennial in 2017. And um, when I competed for the Marshall Prize, I, I actually everybody, the audience voted and like, you know, those American Idol shows or what have you. And somehow picked our, my, our project, myself and Igor. Um, we did a significant amount of lobbying all weekend. You know, lots of of, of beers were bought. I'm just kidding, but uh, <laughs> um, but uh, we we uh, we then launched the Marshall Prize project, which inevitably led to some really cool outcomes in Ukraine. Okay, so you got the money, you have this project, and your report at the end of the project, you wrote about how Ukraine needed a new Marshall Plan for Veteran Society. So, I guess first of all, what was when you kind of did your pre preliminary research? What were the kind of issues that you found there to begin with that you needed to tackle? It was highly fragmented, as you can imagine, between not only the NGO space, but the government agencies that had a hand or a stake in serving veterans at some point of the that pipeline didn't speak with each other, didn't communicate, didn't even know what the agency on their left and their right did and how to properly tie in with them. So that significant market, like, fragmentation issue was brought up like several times, which I think was part of an ongoing conversation by the Poroshenko administration at the time to stand up this Ministry of Veterans Affairs, which they ultimately did. And part of that work that we did by bringing a lot of experts, both from NATO countries and non-NATO countries to Ukraine during that Marshall Prize project, I think helped them kind of formulate of what it should look like and what it shouldn't look like based on all the mistakes that we've been referring to over the the course of the, the podcast. But there were also some significant wins and not only creating the Ministry of Veterans Affairs and conducting a market roll-up, so to speak, of that highly fragmented grouping of social services provided by the government, which they're still working out, by the way, but the NGO sector, too. And I think um, the, the the launch of the Veteran Hub is very it's – ve- it's a model that's very much predicated on the combined arms model. So they have a single point of entry transition center co-working space for NGOs to collaborate effectively. And it's central in Kiev, and they're looking to expand several others – throughout the country to meet the needs of veterans in the rural and other urban areas. And I think that there has been a lot of great work done there. But there are still significant challenges, I think, that are ahead of us in terms of how we continue to solve for these these really complex problems. So I'm just curious, what was it like or what was your experience actually working on setting up a ministry in a country that you are not a citizen of? I mean, I wish I can't take too much credit for it, of course, because it's we were just there during the process and we helped. I think my role was really to answer the question directly. My role was to facilitate the experts coming from the United States to meet with those members of parliament that were actually writing the that codify the Ministry of Veterans Affairs. Making the connections to make it all happen. From the and from the legal perspective, they were designing a new a new department, a new ministry level authority within the Ukrainian government, and that is completely foreign to me, and it will forever remain so, I imagine. But from the programmatic design 
perspective, we brought in the right people at the right time to help influence, I think, what it should look like and what resources and experts we can bring to bear from the United States and Canada, UK, et cetera. So in terms of the actual, I mean, the conflict in the Donbass is still going on. What is, so there's, you said about 300,000 Ukrainian soldiers, um, more than that, and more than 15,000 combatant casualties, correct? So how many soldiers are coming back and just reintegrating? Yeah, I, th- I think that they've normalized service and now m- more so because in the in the beginning of the the war, it was a lot of volunteers just going out there to really stop the Russians in their track, you know, start stop the separatists in their tracks, so to speak. And it wasn't official uniformed military. And since then, they've they've they, that was been one of the major challenges. That the challenges of ser- how do you define service that they've addressed is these militia groups and like you know recognizing their service and and, and providing benefits. Yeah, they're not recognized to begin with. How do you recognize them and help them when they yeah come back? How do you help them? Right? Yeah. They 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 were not conditioned or trained to see what they saw and certainly weren't reintegrated immediately correctly. And so, how do we fill those gaps and make sure that these young men and women are taken care of. Um, and so they, they've done a lot of great work, I think, in, in, in defining that. But more importantly, they have a better tempo now because so many people volunteered at the beginning and then they all got out of the military or released from service once things normalized, not normalized, you know, for better lack of a better term. And then now it's a much more routine, you know, service contract, you serve your years and then you get out or you stay in the reserves if you choose to. So it's um it's it's a it's a lot more regular pace of people. So it because it's instead of just two hundred thousand people all of a sudden are veterans, you know? Uh where like it was in twenty sixteen, seventeen, eighteen kind of thing. I'm curious, is there just given the nature of the conflict and that it's right in the backyard of Ukraine or versus with the Danes in Afghanistan for us here in America with Afghanistan and Iraq, those are distant, faraway conflicts. And at least in the U.S., a lot of people don't even know anyone who's serving. Whereas in Ukraine, it seems like maybe it's a, it's a much closer mm-hmm. conflict. Are the kind of challenges and issues that veterans are dealing with when they're coming back, have you seen big differences in kind of these key challenges and are the does the approach need to be tailored to, or is it kind of can it be universal, I or think, a little bit of both? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that there's a little bit of both. I mean, because it's such a unique circumstance of war that they are fighting in there. It's almost a civil war in many ways, and ensuring that you're setting up an infrastructure to take care of these folks when they when they get back. I mean, that's that's their major prerogative, and a lot of the same issues that we see like underemployment and unemployment, you know, access to, you know, qualified, you know, evidence-based mental health care is a a gap, making sure that they have specialized health care delivery that for combat-related wounds, um, be that traumatic brain injury or combat-related operational stress or exposure to airborne hazards that are you know, normal civilians wouldn't be exposed to. So that the, there's 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 spe- specialized care that needs to be tailored. But I think the Ukrainian experience is much different in a lot of ways, just because they're fighting for their own 
country in their own country and feels closer it is closer it's physically closer we haven't done that in generations um we haven't thank thank goodness we haven't had to but it's a much different feeling when you're an expeditionary force and you're going to fight wars seven thousand miles away for a purpose you may or may not agree with um, or a cause you may but it doesn't matter because you're following orders and I, I think that there's a significant difference in the mentality of the Ukrainian people that will forever be changed, which will ultimately strengthen their country and allow them to separate themselves and really come up as a, 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 a fantastic country in the next 10 years. It's going to be really cool to see. In terms of, you mentioned this, but I think PTSD is a real issue of interest for a lot of people because really serious and it's really important and it's just becoming more talked about. Are the rates of PTSD with Ukraine, did, have you seen them, is it different, higher than what, you're, what you've dealt with in the States? I, I don't know. We're, we're going to know a lot more. Uh, there's a big survey being conducted right now um, by our friends at IREX who are executing a State Department grant right now um, in Ukraine. And we should know a lot more based on the data and what veterans are actually reporting. I would say that Based on the experience and the people that I've, I've spoken with, evidence-based mental health care is kind of a newer uh, vertical in Ukraine, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And it's still like normal. We're, we're still normalizing it here in the United States, too. I think, you know, that's behavioral health is not top of mind to most people, but it should be. And it, and it I think it's growing. And I think the, you know, the, the you know, the acceptance of it uh, is, is growing in terms of how it's being delivered and what the rates of PTSD, you know, and how that, how that, how all that's intertwined. I think that because of that issue, I mentioned earlier that a lot of these folks were not conditioned, properly conditioned for combat before being directly dropped into combat. That of course accelerates the potential to have some elements of combat or operational stress. And I think that it still can only be acute and not chronic if treated by, you know, best-in-class mental health care clinicians. And we're we're closing that gap, hopefully, here in the United States more and more as we continue to connect veterans to evidence-based care. Getting back to the project and your work, last year, 2019, you actually brought former Veterans Affairs Secretary McDonald over to Ukraine. Why what was the purpose of that and what was what was that like and what was the takeaways from that? Absolutely. Uh, having someone with the experience that, uh, that Secretary Bob has, um, which is, you know, he goes by Secretary Bob. He is, was not only the Secretary of Veterans Affairs under President Obama and, by the way, completely revolutionized the customer service delivery and focus of the administration that are we're now seeing like phenomenal effects and impacts because of his leadership. And he has a business background, yes. Yeah, yeah. he used to run Procter & Gamble, which is one of the biggest companies in the world. And oh, by the way, he's is a West Pointer and he served five years in, as an officer in the United States Army. So Yeah, not too bad of a resume. Yeah, a fantastic resume. And one of the guys that you really want on your team to go in there and look at what they're trying to build and make specific policy recommendations on, you know, what what perspective, you know, they should be uh, looking at it from and what experts, most importantly, what experts he can bring to bear from his Rolodex in the future to ensure that they avoid making all the mistakes that we that we did, that we can help them truly accelerate that the infrastructure set up in Ukraine to make sure that they are 
ready to, to, to transition veterans more successfully as the war continues. So it was a really cool experience and lots of fun stories. And the access you get all of a sudden, if you're bringing a former cabinet level secretary, is not a bad deal whatsoever. And I, I think just one of the favorite memories is literally connecting with Ambassador Bill Taylor but weeks before, you know, everything happened here in the United States and getting his perspective as a Vietnam veteran and as a career diplomat on what should be done in terms of veterans was also pretty cool. And him and Bob were, you know, five years apart at West Point, which is neat. You kind of just mentioned what I was going to bring up next, which is that there has been transition in government um, in Ukraine with the Zelensky administration. And also we have President Trump um, and Secretary Bob was an Obama appointee. So how are the relationships between the two new administrations and how are you finding working with them? Um, and what's your kind of take on your outlook for the future? I, I actually think that as it relates to veterans, because I don't yes. want, yeah. for the purpose of this conversation. <laughs> I don't conversation, want to speculate too yes, much on course. the political conversation. Yes. Um, this administration has been pretty good at supporting and uplifting the veteran apparatus. So in particular with a an, a $5 million in multi-year investment in the Ukrainian Veteran Society by the State Department's um, Conflict and Stabilizations Office. And I think that move was critically important and at the juncture we are now with the, the Ministry of Veterans Affairs and its place moving forward in, in Ukrainian society and how they can also work better, more effectively with the NGO sector that is more prevalent at the local level. So that investment in itself has helped really kind of drive a, a, a greater sense of collaboration. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to report on the outcomes and impact of that that project. To tie this all together, because we talked about the U.S., we talked about Denmark, we talked about Ukraine. I want to get your, what's your big picture kind of take on all the work that you've done so far and all the work that you plan on doing in the future? What's been the most surprising thing that you've learned since you started all of this, all these projects? Interesting. That Europe needs more taco shops. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have, you know, you guys have obviously traveled a lot. but Yeah, I've never had a taco in Europe, I don't think. We, yeah. we, I mean, it, they're, they're really, it's, it's devastating. Um, <laughs> I'd have a diplomatic incident for that comment, but, um. <laughs> so, uh, I think a lot of the, the, what, what has been the most surprising is that how much investment there is from the defense, the ministries of defense in each of these countries in the infrastructure to support their soldiers when they transition, which leads to better outcomes and how our own Department of Defense is not invested in this process and how many gaps still exist because of that. And it's really become my life's work, I think, to figure that out and to solve for that complex, large scale, maybe unsolvable problem. Hmm. So what's what's the next step? And what is what do you see as the outlook for the future for your work, at least? 
I think uh, as it relates to Ukraine specifically, I think we can continue to work there and bring the experts and the, the friends and the leaders that we have here and, and not only in the United States, but our other NATO allies to help them continue to build that infrastructure and make, avoid the mistakes, making the mistakes like we have. I think we can we can partner with the State Department and partner with the organization that's executing that that project to make sure that there's not a ton of redundancy, because right now there are a lot of fragmented funding projects that aren't collaborating and communicating with each other in Ukraine so that the international development apparatus has really gone after and supported Ukraine. But the problem with that is that no one's people are are working in silos and we need to bust those silos like significantly and work together. Representative Marcy Kaptur, who is one of the co-chairs of the the Ukrainian caucus here in the House of Representatives, is is really trying to bring those folks in under you know, at least into a dialogue to where we can, we can, you know, make sure that that does happen in a, at a higher rate. Um, but as of right now, I think that there is a lot of market, fra- high market fragmentation among those coming from outside Ukraine to help Ukraine. And that presents its own set of problems, as I mentioned. Um, but as it relates to, you know, what the big pie in the sky idea is, I really think that if we can continue to develop this international body of work, this, this idea of post-conflict international development for, military and veterans and because there will continue to be wars unfortunately and there are some smaller countries that we could help and we can impact and we could bring um, a lot of resources and experts to bear i think that's really the future of where this work lies and really uniting all of these experts into a more formal consistent dialogue all right well let's leave it on that positive note thank you so much thank you Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant, Rachel Tausenfreund, and me, Sydney Simon. 